0: Hello, and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, and I'm the staff pastor here at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Today, we are looking at the next section in the book of Isaiah, following along with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Come Follow Me Sunday School curriculum going through the Old Testament. It is the week of September 12th through the 18th, and Isaiah 13 to 14, 24 to 30, and 35 are on the schedule. Um, I uh, am not going to look at any of those chapters, actually. (laughs) Just Isaiah 19, which, uh, you know, you shouldn't skip. Though I will say, I I do have uh, this book. I was going to use this. I I was going to use this more. Maybe I will in the next couple of weeks. Um, But I picked it up at uh, at a bookstore in Provo, pioneer book, one of my favorite bookstores. And it was printed here in in our valley, in Orem, and it's the Old Testament with Joseph Smith translation. And this particular uh, edition of the book, or this volume in the series, rather, covers Genesis, Isaiah, and Malachi. And um, when you get to Isaiah 27, no, 29, Isaiah 29, Joseph Smith added a ton to the Bible, um, which is quite interesting. And I I was going to cover that more, and then I didn't, so I don't know, maybe I will later on with something else from the book of Isaiah. Um, There are major portions that he didn't touch, and then when he got into chapter 29 of Isaiah, he really, really uh, added a lot of his own thoughts there, so... Anyway, um, yeah, maybe maybe we'll talk about it more in the days to come. Something to look forward to or to dread. I don't know how you feel about that, but uh, that's on my mind. But today, we are just going to be looking at Isaiah 19. Now, this section of Isaiah is, is a little difficult uh, for a lot of people to read. If you've ever read through the Book of Mormon, you know that the Book of Alma is tough for a lot of people to read. Very tough for me to read. It's like quicksand. You're moving right along in the Book of Mormon, then you hit Alma, and it's like, whoa, this is... This is kind of tough. Well, Isaiah uh, can kind of be like that for people, especially in this section, because in chapters 13 to 23 uh, of Isaiah, you've just got a bunch of condemnation against the nations where Israel's enemies are being condemned, and they're told of what's going to happen to them both in the near future and in the distant future, that God's judgment is going to come upon them. And that's what we see at the start of Isaiah 19 with Egypt. God gives a a pronouncement of judgment against Egypt specifically in this chapter. And so let's just start off by reading the first few verses. Isaiah 19.1, it says, The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will each fight against his brother and each against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. So this visit from Yahweh, the Lord, to Egypt is not a pleasant thing. It's not, oh, yay, he's coming. It's a, he's coming in judgment, oh, no, kind of feeling that Egypt should have. And basically, it says here that God's going to start a civil war in Egypt. He's going to turn the Egyptians against each other. And this is a part of his judgment. It says something about how God interacts with the nations, right? That even the civil wars that nations fight, they don't happen apart from God's sovereign working in those nations. And uh, sometimes, in this case, it's a sign of God's judgment that they would kill each other. Well, further on down, it's not just that he's He's getting the humans in Egypt to interact with one another in a negative way. He's actually going to use some of the uh, ecosystem in Egypt to judge them. In verse 5, it says, "...the waters from the sea will dry up, and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away." The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, driven away, and be no more. Verse 8, and the fishermen will lament, and all those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn, and those who spread nets on the waters will pine away. So God is going to directly affect, again, the the ecosystem. They are going to... uh, They're going to suffer some physical calamity. And this is a way that God's wrath is shown all throughout the Bible, not just in the uh, Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, not just with Egypt, but also with Israel. There was uh, just this past Sunday, I covered in uh, briefly 2 Samuel 21, God had Israel go through a three-year drought because of a covenant that they broke with the Gibeonites. God touched their land and used bad circumstances well, created bad circumstances and used those bad circumstances to discipline and show his anger and wrath against the israelites and here the same thing is happening to egypt because of their rejection of him because of their rejection of god's people their antagonism toward the people of god god is now pouring out his wrath against egypt again there will be um you know some of this you can look back and say god did it then And then there's some things that you look and you say, well, this is yet future. And uh, the next section is definitely yet future of Isaiah 19, as we see what else is going to happen to Egypt. It's not all bad news, believe it or not, but God is actually going to be extremely kind to Egypt. And this is a very, very fascinating passage. So if you've kind of been checking out a little bit, hearing, okay, God's mad at Egypt, you know, he's disciplining them, yada, yada, yada. Now's a good time to check back in, all right, and think about what is, what is being said here. Isaiah nineteen sixteen. in that day, I'll we'll stop right there. <laughs> You're going to see that phrase, in that day, come up, and this points us to more distant future now in the text of Isaiah, okay? So now we're thinking really, really future, and even for us today, you know, almost 3,000 years after Isaiah, this is still future, all right? We're still waiting for this to happen. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women. Oof, hope there are no uh, social justice warriors listening today. And they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. The, The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. All right, so in that day, this yet future day, God is going to take the physical land that he gave to Israel, and it's going to become a terror, not just to Egypt, but to all the nations, because his purpose is going to be realized in that land. Israel, for their almost entire history, has not really been a people to be feared in the flesh. They're not big, scary, strong, super-duper, extra, whatever. They're Kind of puny, measly people. Yet they have the power of God because they are God's nation. And you know that that's not to say they're they're all saved um, right now. Israel is in an apostate state, believing a false religion. They've rejected the uh, the Messiah of their faith. Yet there's coming a day when God is going to turn His attention back on Israel in full force in such a way that. Um, there's going to be a demonstration of his purpose through them that's going to bring terror to the nations. And that's what's being described here in Isaiah 19. He's going to use the land that he gave them. He'd go all the way back to Genesis 12 and 13 and 15. This land that God has unconditionally given them, he's going to use it to affect the nations around them. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 18. In that day, there's a phrase again. Five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. Whoa! A lot just happened in one verse. Maybe it didn't sound like a lot to you, but Egypt is going to learn a new language, which is Hebrew. It says the Egyptians are going to learn the language of the land of Canaan. They're going to be able to speak Hebrew. Hebrew. And they're going to swear allegiance to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts. What's going on? This Egypt that God was just pouring out his wrath on and just, you know, saying, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to turn you against each other. I'm going to dry up your waters. I'm going to take away your fish. Now they're swearing allegiance to God and they have fear of God because of the purpose that he's actualizing through the land given to Israel. This is a very interesting development, isn't it? We should keep reading. Verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Startling. Amazing. Awesome. Egypt is going to not only swear to the Lord, which means turning to him in faith and committing their lives to him, they're also going to build an altar to the Lord, and God is going to, to save them through this savior, a deliverer, a champion, they're, they're going to be reconciled to God, and they're actually going to be persecuted because of their faith in God. They're going to be persecuted by oppressors, and in that, they're going to cry out to the Lord, and he's going to deliver them. This is just it just keeps getting more and more intense, and it doesn't stop. Let's pick back up. Verse 21, thus says the Lord, no, that's not what it says. Thus, the Lord. I'm so used to saying, thus says the Lord, apparently. Sorry about that. Thus, the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Here's our phrase again, in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and will heal them. Marvelous. Remarkable. This hasn't happened yet. They're going to turn to God with this altar where there will be sacrifices and offerings. They will be oppressed. They will be delivered. They'll be reconciled to God and will know him, and he will know them, and they will be just in relationship with him nationally. Totally hasn't happened yet in Egypt. I mean, if, you've, if you know anything about Egypt, you know that they're not, they're not a whole bunch of evangelical Christian, Jesus-loving people, are they? And yet, this is going to happen to them. Okay, still, it still doesn't stop there. It keeps getting more and more amazing. Verse 23, "...in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria." And the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now, maybe you don't know a lot about the Assyrians, and that's okay, but they don't get along with the Egyptians. Egypt and Assyria are not buddy-buddy. They're not like, you know, uh, the USA and the USA's allied nations, and who knows even who those are anymore. But um, it's not like they love each other. They've been enemies for a long time. And, And now, in this picture, we see that they join together not only for, like, commerce and supporting one another nationally, but to worship together. They're going to worship the same God. We just heard about the Egyptians' worship, and the Assyrians are going to conform to that worship, too. How amazing. Now, we do want to notice, before we get on to the very last amazing thing, it just all keeps building... But we do want to notice that the Egyptians and the Assyrians are still distinct nations here, okay? It doesn't say the Assyrians become the Egyptians, and they're all Egyptians. It doesn't say that Egypt becomes Assyrians, and they're all Assyrians, but they still have their national identity. Even their borders don't blend. There's a highway that goes from one to the other, but the borders are still recognized, right? There's still geographical boundaries at play. Yet there's a harmony, there's a there's a unity and a harmony that's existing that's never existed. And of course the root of that is they're worshiping the same God. All right. If it couldn't get more astounding, no it can. Here it is. In that day, verse twenty four, there's our phrase, in that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed saying, blessed is Egypt, my people and Assyria, the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance. So now Israel's in the mix. So you you might think, okay, he, he's focusing on Egypt and Assyria and, and he did his thing with Israel to bring Egypt to belief. And, uh, and then now he's done with Israel. Nope. Nope, he's he's never done with Israel because he's made forever covenants with them. Well, here we have Egypt, Assyria, and Israel. Again, they are distinct groups. They're not all blended together. They don't all become Jews. They don't all become Egyptians. None of that. They're distinct people. They are living together in harmony. They are worshiping together because Israel is now the third party in this worship, and They're a blessing in the midst of the earth. They're a blessing to the other nations. This is really something. You know that there's a whole bunch of tension all the time in the Middle East. You know, sometimes we'll make a little progress with Israel and Palestine and all those debates that rage on. Well, one day it's all going to be settled. One day you'll have Israel and Egypt and Assyria all dwelling together in perfect harmony and worshiping the Lord together. It seems so impossible, doesn't it? I mean, that that just seems beyond what we could ever imagine, because, of course, in this life, we're so short-sighted, and we consider so many of the world's affairs apart from the reality of God, sadly. We just do. But here, when we bring what God has said to bear on our world, we see an amazing, hopeful, joyful, beautiful picture of what will become. You'll have Israel and Egypt and Assyria and the surrounding nations dwelling in harmony with their national distinctions, worshiping together. Well, um, it's important to note here as we finish up that this will happen through Jesus Christ, not apart from Jesus Christ. We are in the Old Testament right now, and you might be tempted to read that and not think of what the cross of Christ is has to do with this, and just think, maybe God will do this apart from Jesus. The the Jesus stuff was just for Christians, just for the church. And uh, at this time, it looks like, you know, Christians, there's something else going on. Christians are off the scene, and now it's, you know, something else happening. Well, no, um, now that we are on this side of the incarnation of Jesus, and on this side of his finished work on the cross, and rising from the dead, and ascending into heaven, we look at this, and we recognize that Those events that Christ performed, those have direct impact on how Egypt and Assyria and Israel are all going to come to be reconciled to God and to dwell in harmony on the earth. It's going to be through belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, Israel's Messiah, as the Savior of the world, that the Gentiles would call on his name. It's going to be through Jesus that all of this is going to happen. And it's going to be really bad for them before it gets better. It's going to be really nasty. There's a time called the Day of the Lord, and God's wrath is going to be poured out on the earth. Some of those things we were reading about in Egypt, think of all of that happening, but really, really amplified. I mean, a, a third of, you know, all of water creatures are going to die, and a third of the earth is going to be scorched up. I mean, there's going to be all kinds of just terrifying sites, when when God's wrath is poured out on the earth for their sin, and he judges the earth. It's called the Day of the Lord. Many Old Testament prophets and a couple of New Testament apostles talk about this time. And it's going to be really, really bad. But through that, there will be, of course, a mass conversion of Israelites. That's very clear in the New Testament. There will also be some Gentiles getting saved. And here we see Egypt and Assyria coming to know the Lord through the gospel of Christ, believing in the finished work of Jesus so as to be saved. And in the end, um, it is just going to be a beautiful picture. Uh, at the end of the, the day of the Lord, God's wrath, it ends with the second coming. Jesus returns. This is the book of Revelation. You got all of God's wrath up through chapter 18. And then chapter 19, Jesus returns. He strikes down the nations. He's the rider on the white horse and he sets up his kingdom that lasts for a thousand years. And in that kingdom, you have this kind of stuff going on where these nations, they're they're still distinct nations, and yet there's harmony like there's never been, and there's true worship happening that they're sharing in together. And that is really, really, really incredible. That's just awesome stuff. So um, I hope you enjoyed that look at uh, the end, that look at uh, future things. And that's just one chapter from Isaiah. There is so much in Isaiah to learn But uh, this chapter is is pretty powerful. And uh, next week, for the week of uh, September 19th through the 25th, then we get into Isaiah 40 to 49. Oh, my. If you're LDS and you're listening to this, you don't want to miss next week. I'll just leave it at that. God bless.